to positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America. No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God damn America. That's in the Bible for killing innocent people. God damn America for treating us citizens as less than human. God damn America as long as she tries to act like she is God. And okay. Three, two, one. Madam Speaker, imagine you've just walked out of this chamber and outside is a gorgeous sunset. You have a Polaroid camera and you snap a beautiful picture and the gray photo prints out the front. You hold it and shake it, waiting for the picture to appear. But suddenly someone walks by and snatches your photo. What the hell? You're stunned. You cry, why did you destroy my my picture? The person replies, oh, it wasn't a picture. It wasn't fully developed yet. Ah, metaphor. <laughs> the face this guy is making while he says this shit. That photo was transforming into a beautiful image. Shaking a baby it, with it his like, wrist. <laughs> trying to get that thing developed. Is done to the most precious image of all. Yeah, no you matter what Elcast says, you should not shake your baby That's like a Polaroid picture. I'm surprised this guy is a, knows what a Polaroid is. He looks like he's 23. Death before they breathe life. Yeah. Eternal souls He's just hot and you're jealous. Sanctified by Almighty God and endowed a based Madison Cawthorn. Are denied their birth by a nation that was born in freedom. God's breath of life blown away by the breath of man. This is the part everyone's this mad about. This cruel and fallen world may seem too filthy for their very presence. But these precious temples are crafted in the image of God himself. One day, perhaps when science darkens the soul of the left, <laughs> repent. But until then, the carnage of this unconscionable deed will stain the fabric of our nation. I hope that the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade. I hope that we stop the, uh, the genocide of abortion in this country. With that, I yield back. When science darkens the soul of the left. They're after wow. our vessels, our beautiful vessels. Wait, I don't understand. When, the, when our soul is darkened, isn't our soul already darkened? I think in his mind... Like we uh, once science darkens our souls enough, we die and become like hollow, like in Dark Souls. Yeah, but it's what's dark weird souls. is you can still fight when you're hollow. So this man has not played enough Dark Souls. Well, but the, 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 I think the idea is, see, Anders, you're confused because you're thinking of Catholicism, where your soul is born darkened and must be redeemed, right? But he's Protestant, Whoa. so. There's is there original sin for Protestants? Do they have that? Uh, uh, I think it depends on the sect. I know that they're mostly like a real estate scheme at this point, but uh, you're thinking of Mormons. No, I said what I said. They abandoned the Pope, and I'll slander them on my podcast. <laughs> Protestant is like um, predeterminist, and your God's already hates you and shit, but you should. Do you have free will because there's no free will and make your own church up with your friends in the woods and then America happens and uh, you have way too much cultural influence and uh, you're scaring everyone. You're putting you're like, Martin, Martin Luther did believe in original sin. So, okay. He's, uh, he's, yeah. He was the homie to me growing up. I always Martin liked Luther him. was the homie to you? Yes, because... <laughs> 
I mean, he's an original debate guy. Like, he just destroyed some Catholic yeah. nerd. He's the first poster. Yeah, he literally. literally posted. Right. And he was into uh, weird diets. Diet of worms. Well, but, the, the thing that people don't like about this is that in uh, the, uh, aside from the fact that he's, like, wishing damnation on the satanic tint of the left, he's also calling women, like, his big beautiful temples and oh, women yeah, are like, I am not your temple. You get shorty. out of me. Get out of me. <laughs> what are men in Do this not situation? Post on my door. <laughs> what are men? Uh, men be at the temple. building. Men are business skyscrapers and women are temples. Makes sense. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Penis is like a skyscraper because of the shape. Yeah, you know, your penis is like, like way longer than it is wide by like thousands of feet. Just speak for yourself. It goes all the way up your torso and then <laughs> up into your uh, throat almost. A lot of people don't know this about the human body. So your dick is actually like fucking eight feet long or whatever. This is the one trick they don't want you to know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You, you know what it's I always tragic. like? When a guy has a short dick, it just means he's got an eight-foot eight, eight dick, but then the only little bit of it comes out of the body. And why? what a cruel trick from a god that, frankly, I don't think exists. Right. You can't put too many buildings in a short dick. I mean, too many businesses, rather. Huh. Because Fair. they don't have enough floors, is what I'm saying. Right. What were you saying, Anders? What were you saying? Oh, uh, Martin Luther, you know what? Part because I was baptized Lutheran, so I've always thought about bringing this back, maybe profiting on, off of it, which is probably not something very Protestant like, of you, very Protestant to say that. Yeah, he was very into self flagellation, just whacking yourself on the oh. head, and that's what I was into as a little boy. Um, and I've thought about break, making it into a like a yoga style business, like convincing yuppies that this is actually really good for you, like it's uh. Yoga is genuinely very good, but this would be like a ripoff of yoga. Just a trick, like rich uh, rich Caucasians. So it's yoga uh, where you whip yourself. Yeah. yeah no, you get yuppies to buy old-timey floggers, and you tell them, oh, back in medieval times when the monks would do this, they didn't know it, but they were actually opening the chakras. Exactly. Right? It's like going or, paleo. Yeah, Long paleo or staring at the sun, which is apparently what the island boys actually do. Really? <laughs> yeah, because they say that in the yeah. people. I'm sure are familiar with the island boys by now. The island boys, right? But they they have it's that not our like, job to at educate the sun. you about the island boys. <laughs> Read a book for crying out loud! But I saw an interview with them where they're like, "Yeah, we really like actually stare at the sun, <laughs> and it opens up our third eye." <laughs> All joking aside. This is how we spend our time. Blind. <laughs> so funny. They look like um they to me they they look like Sideshow Bob and when they had his brother on who Sideshow yeah. Mel. No, no, his brother, Sideshow Fuck, what's his name? Uh cuz they had Niles on cuz he's right. Yes. And he has exactly their haircut. I can't get it out of my head when I see them. It's just they look like they fight each other with their little you know, limp wrists, you know. Uh-huh. Like burns. Yeah, it's just sideshow Bob with like shorter, different colored hair, right? And he's not a clown. 
yeah, it has like business hair, yeah. <laughs> but it's as crazy as Sideshow Bob's, just as it orderly. Sometimes I'll be watching the news and feel like I'm watching Sideshow Madison Cawthorn with his crazy <laughs> ideas. Good is, grief. Well, let's start. Let's go back. Let's start with his initial metaphor, which, by the way, I are do they always speak this figuratively when they're making cases for shit? Seems crazy that there's this much like let's just make a case for your political point. Right. But there's always there's they're always like writing like an eighth grade essay when they're trying to convince you to ban abortion. He starts with this metaphor. You're standing around. You're holding one of those Polaroid cameras. We all know and love in the year 2021. The kind where you take a picture and then it goes like and then a picture comes out. And uh, well, either that or I guess he's disposable. Someone, yeah. Well, maybe it's not a Polaroid. Maybe it's a regular camera. You take a picture. Someone comes up and then rips your like your camera out. So in the metaphor, your disposable camera before you take it to Walgreens to get it developed—a thing we all do all the time. Right. It's this is it's a man pregnant. who's choosing tradition, but his tradition is like 1992. Yeah, great <laughs> tradition. He's returned to when cameras were less good. Your camera is pregnant while after you've taken all the pictures but before you take it to the camera hospital which is the corner of a walgreens or a eckerd's or whatever the fuck exists in your neck of the woods and then the when they bring they bring it back and they've printed out the photos those are your babies according mm. to this man it's right? pregnant with memories now tell yeah. me god didn't have a plan and abortion is someone intercepting and like exposing your film and uh and then i guess if you get that developed it's a like a stillborn or something i don't These know are all is... things you can think about when you're forced to have your baby by the state <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's so <laughs> stupid <laughs> it's such a dark time I guess actually for him, <laughs> taking a photo is fucking. Yeah, That's it cool. is. Oh, I see. Yeah, so there, you know, and is that why some it's conservatives over so fast? Have, <sighs> some conservatives actually have actually said this that every sperm yeah. globule which contains millions of potential lives, there should be funerals for each and every one of them. Folks, welcome back to the show. It's another week <laughs> with we, your three successful sperms on the mic. That's right. Oh, yeah. That's right. Made it to the egg. Best of the best, baby. Mm, count the rings. Show, count my disgusting rings. <laughs> <laughs> Number one sperm. Um, hi, I'm Jake Flores. That's Anders Lee. Anders Lee here. That's Alex Patek. What up? It's Pod Damn America. It's the show. We got a barn Ooh. burner for you this week, folks. <laughs> You're gonna uh, love it. Yeah. If you have currently a disposable camera, congratulations on your bounty. Um, and if you choose to destroy those photos before you get them developed because maybe you don't like them or they would ruin your life. I support your right to not have to, why would this is a weird metaphor? The camera thing. Cause what if you don't want the photo? It doesn't, <laughs> it's like, really just the shaking part. I think that worked. Yeah. 
And did it work? I don't know. I have problems with it. But That's how um, you develop a fucking baby is you shake it. I mean, a photo. Oh, <laughs> we have an impressionable parents listening, and they should be. You know how they're like fertile. Not shake the baby. There are fertile poses that you can do after you've uh, you've copulated to ensure that the sperm gets to the egg or whatever. You, you can curl up in a ball or whatever, like in um, like in Midsummer. Um, yeah. What if the way to ensure that you're gonna have a baby is you gotta shake the woman around? <laughs> just get it, mix it all up in there. Just grab her by the shoulders, be like, "Come on, <laughs> bring me an air." <laughs> yeah, that's something Low I think her. about. <laughs> oh boy, she's like, "What the fuck are you doing?" Oh, I'll never, I'll never conceive your child. Yeah, and then the baby comes out of her like. This is actually an interesting discussion. There may uh, never be a better time to have a baby as an asteroid may slam into the Earth next week, destroying all life on the planet. What is the actual odds on that? Um, I'm going to get get action. I'm going to get the article up. Um, So, wait, you would bet for the asteroid? Well, I want to know what the odds are. Okay, hold on. I mean, um, it would make sense to bet all my money against because if it doesn't happen, I can cash it in. And okay. if it does happen, then too bad. Like, it's not going to matter anyway. I want my baby to be a Daguerro type or a silver tin baby. So it looks like a creepy Tom Waits photo. What's a silver tin baby? Like a tin. Like there's some silver tin photography. Tin type. Uh, the really cool grainy kind that's made in like a tin thing, like sepia tone. No, no, no. Okay. no it's no. fucking cool. There's all these like proto forms of photography before they kind of land on like the one we know and love that is also now obsolete because of digital babies or whatever. Uh-huh. But um, you know, it starts off with like oh. man ray and like rayographs and shit. Where so this just, is just like, old school like. 19th century yeah cameras? It, okay it would okay. be like if we everyone did tin type photography for just every photo it would be massively wasteful it's like a antiquated thing but it looks fucking cool worth it yeah you, you can do it as like a novelty now okay so this is what people.com says a football field sized asteroid will soon pass by earth Here's what you need to know. And first of all, I'm hearing football field-sized asteroid. I'm thinking touchdown. Is it football field-shaped? I, th- I They give me the impression it's long, but I don't know how well you can actually like see these things in the darkness of space. Uh, an asteroid as wide as the Eiffel Tower is tall, weird way to say that, called 4660 Nereus, or 1982 DB, is expected to skim past Earth on December 11th, NASA considers the 330-meter asteroid to be potentially hazardous, in quotes, due to its size and proximity to our planet. Oh, boy. Which I'm hearing about this, and I'm like, how did we make a branch of the army that only does space stuff, and they are not in charge of doing the movie Armageddon to this asteroid? Right. That's what I was going to say, is you should shoot up um, some of the best football players onto the asteroid, because maybe the the, uh, size is such that if a, a full game of football is completed on it, then it'll tip away 
and you need the best uh, football. That would be an awesome. And the 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 ball is a an asteroid. Use its shape awesome. against it. You're saying, yeah, yeah. In, in the movie, Morgan Freeman is going like, "By God, it's working. It's going away. <laughs> <laughs> it's a turnover on down." Mr. President, get me the phone. I don't know why he's asking the president to get him the phone. It seems fucked up. There's asteroid shit happening just like I knew there would be. Call the president of China. We've got to get them to do this to all the asteroids. Because there's different asteroids coming at every country. I really don't remember like what happens in that movie. Do they get hit by it? Yeah. In Deep Impact or Armageddon? Oh, I know they get hit by it in Deep Impact. It's kind of a giveaway. Deep Impact, I believe they do get hit by it. And Armageddon, they narrowly evade it. Nice. Exploding it. Oh, I guess yeah. I didn't get the distance. It's like um it's supposed to be uh this is ranked among the top 3% of the most accessible near earth asteroids. So accessible? Yeah, like you could like, Ladies and gentlemen of Congress, it. imagine you are you've summoned a humble asteroid using the black materia from Final Fantasy 7. And <laughs> someone comes along and hires oil coal miners or whatever to fly a spaceship to your asteroid and blow it up before you get to welcome it into your life on your planet. This is why we must overturn Roe versus Wade. An asteroid, every asteroid is a miracle. Please. That's true. It's God's, it's God's path. Who I are we? am the one winged angel. He's just screaming at Congress. <laughs> rips off. <laughs> he pulls out the Mazagoon. Who are we to up. say that the path that God has trotted out, uh, that we should be able to disrupt it? You know? We yeah, should exactly. just. Well, I think it's going to be a few million miles away from the Earth. I think that we're doing Protestantism now. We let we have to let the asteroid kill us. Because... I will never do that. <laughs> God has a vessel on Earth, and he wears a tall hat. Oh yeah, now the Pope I'm a... is a vessel, isn't he? Yeah, he's a vessel of great ideas. There's a no baby. Imagining, you know that uh, Bernie Sanders. One of his favorite movies is Melancholia. Apparently, saying I know. <laughs> so, what if he's going to have to get to the Senate floor and like describe what happened? Oh, Kristen is a, a bride, and uh, but it's actually a metaphor for depression and the Earth hits Earth, and uh, this is what we got to do. And he's talking about abortion. It's a metaphor for abortion, right? But he's using. See, I think the asteroid can be. Uh, I mean, honestly, yeah, that could be. If we want to stop the asteroid, that is interfering with God's plan, and mm-hmm. so is abortion, and we should be allowed to do that. Right. That's what I'm saying. Use our yeah. dark science. That's right. Yeah. That's what we're the all dark to cyborgs of the left, imbued with science and lacking in souls. The only people who can stop. Um, what the fuck was that guy's name? Jesus Christ, how many of these young Hitler assholes are they going to crop up? They got, well, there's just like a lot, a, like a big position for you to fill right now if you're under the age of 40 and willing to just be like, Goebbels had good points. Like, you can get a lot of money out of it. Yeah, seems like it. People Jesus are just getting that bag. What the fuck kind of name is Cawthorn? 
Southern. Yeah, it's Plantation incredibly slave-owning-y. But what yeah. you said earlier about Bernie Sanders really did awaken a very good point, which is who's he trying to get to with this um, photograph metaphor? Who's that hitting hard for? Bernie Sanders, who's still using mm. disposable cameras. He has mm, a that's right. camera. Yeah. And I used to, when I was a teenager... Young man, I, anytime I went on a trip, I would get a disposable camera, and it was so much fun and take a bunch of pictures. Oh, take but me back. It's, it's been robbed from this generation. You know, the Beatles actually used to all take pictures on their disposable cameras together in one big room in a circle. Oh, circle yeah, I heard about that. It wasn't <laughs> it wasn't gay back then to do that. No. Just, you could, you could know, take you. those pictures. That's just what young boys did. That's just what we did in Liverpool, they'd say. Liverpool. What is the name? Those that love Liverpool. Recently. Yes, Liverpuglians is apparently what you call somebody from Liverpool, which is just insane to me. Not going to call them that. Yeah, it sounds like an insult. (laughs) Not interested. Yeah. Look at this photograph. (laughs) (laughs) The nickelback guy, and he's talking about his unborn baby just showing you his child he's like look at this photograph i developed this with my cum <laughs> <laughs> well it's a dark time but there are some bright spots in this wild world that's right and we had on a very special guest to talk about him yes um let's go to the tape who are we talking to today? Yeah, do you want to? Well, like... I intro him in the. That's true. Fair enough. Should I intro him twice? Okay. Right, we are speaking with... from like what we're talking about, I yeah. guess. Okay, yeah, the yeah, bright spots in the world, which are Dude, the... it's a hard turn from like <laughs> come the Nickelback guy talking about come to like what okay, we're okay. about to talk about. We just we need some with the foreplay. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, Nickelback, Teddy baby. <laughs> What's their big hit? What is it again? Um, photograph. Um, it's photograph. Okay. I well, that song in the Spider-Man soundtrack. Yeah. That's just Chad Kroger. Hero. You, know you got me hero there. <laughs> not all I'm of Nickelback. Stand and wait. Just Chad Kroger. <laughs> Wrong. Right. <laughs> uh, well, there's so many different ways to go. Okay, this is how you remind how you remind me. Uh, this is how you remind me to uh, overthrow the capitalist class is with solidarity, international solidarity. Huh. And that's one way that we could do it. We could talk about the origin of the name Nickelback, which was at Starbucks. He asked for a Nickelback, and that's where the name came from. <laughs> and Starbucks workers are actually trying to unionize right now in Buffalo. Uh, and you know who else is in a big union? Indian farmers. If you uh, tell them at Starbucks your name is Nickelback, they have to say it. That's right. But, um, yes, you know what's a much sweeter song than Nickelback is the song of the international proletariat. Oh, and to sing it, we have a man. I, I don't. I'm going to do the same intro twice, but let me think of stuff I a legend. Say. A legend. A uh, a bright spot who's going to share with us some things we can do to uh, change the bad times into good times for humanity, for all of humanity, and not just 
the uh, bourgeoisie. Uh, okay. Let's go to the interview with Mr. Vijay Prashad. All right, now we are we are now joined by Vijay Prashad. Uh, how do you give this man an introduction? He is, a, a, I think, first and foremost, an internationalist is what I would describe him as, and a writer at large, a globetrotter, and the director of the Tricontinental Institute. Vijay, thank you for joining us. Thanks a lot. It's a great pleasure to be with you. Thank you. And we were t- chatting before the show, and apparently, uh, well, this is a hot tip we're breaking this i don't know if you've discussed this in media before but you are a trained mime uh can you what can you tell us about that how did you get into that he's oh he can't, can't talk. see him but he's he's right. shrugging um <laughs> his face tells a story you can't ask somebody trained as a mime to tell you about what they have learned uh, but you're a clown so yep. um one clown, another is a mime. Uh-huh. All I can say is that I, um, when I was a young person, was pretty angry about lots of things. And to control my anger, I studied meditation for a long time. Mm. And then when I came to Los Angeles, I felt that mime was the artistic way of doing meditation. And I met this man called Tom Liebhardt, who is you know trained in the great French school of mime. And I found it amazing. It's it's like dance, uh, except uh, you don't have to be as lithe. I'm not a lithe mm. person. I don't have a body for a dancer. Yeah. I wish I could dance like a modern dancer. I think it's beautiful. Uh, but mime was the closest thing. And I really dig it. And I think what's great about mime is it, or anything like that, you know, um, tumbling school, clown school, circus school, any of these things, it it just teach you not to take yourself so goddamn seriously. And I like that. I really like that. You know, I, I never wanted to be a suit. And um, this kind of attitude came to me from, uh, you know, the jokester tradition and mime circus. All of these are in the jokester tradition. If only yeah, there so- was some way to take all this anger and put it in some form of box. <laughs> Something mimes do. Right. Mime, What's... I'm doing the box. You can't see me. <laughs> can't see him. It's interesting you mentioned dance because I actually I, I came to clowning and comedy really from I had to take dance in high school and was terrible at it. I can't learn choreography for the life of me. But one of my teachers was like, you know, you trying to dance is actually pretty funny. And so <laughs> I took that <laughs> And ran with it. Uh, yeah, you can be. It's you got to embrace your inner klutz and and moron and all that. But I had the opposite experience. I was doing mime, and they were like, "This is so rhythmic. Get out there, <laughs> move those hips." You're creating a sexual awakening in the crowd. <laughs> we legally can't let you continue. <laughs> well, you know who else is a a clown? Although I'm I don't dying know. If I would to know. I don't know if I would bestow <laughs> the honor of clown on him. I'm curious what figure you think this guy uh, emulates. Uh, Narendra Modi. What do you think? He's a clown, a mime. I, I asked. I actually asked my clown instructor. I've told the story before, but my clown instructor, if Trump would be a good clown, and he freaked out at me and was like, "He's an awful clown. There's no beauty." <laughs> um, do you think there is any clown in Modi, or is he something else entirely? What what is he? A heel? What what's his deal? 
Well, he is he is an incredible political force uh, as a person because he's really quite intelligent how he puts himself forward. You know, he, he doesn't often say things. He's the opposite of Trump. You know, Trump couldn't stop talking and couldn't stop tweeting and couldn't stop saying stuff. Modi is the opposite. He tries to be the oracle. He tries to be quiet. In fact, during the pandemic, he grew a beard. And there's a way in which, you know, he wanted to stand above the fray of politics, you know, indicate with a finger to his acolytes to do things. But he himself was above it all. It didn't work. It didn't work. To be a clown or to be a mime or to be an artist, you need a sense of the sublime. You know, you mm. have to understand a little bit of the not obvious, you know. And in a sense, Modi tried too hard to be the not obvious. So these people are actually too blunt to be artists. Um, you know, I, I felt that there was something decidedly unattractive in Donald Trump, in the bluntness of him. It's not attractive. Modi is the same. He tries so hard to be this superior figure, you know, who is overseeing a ghastly government in the last seven years, a ghastly government in India. But he, he's attempted to say, I'm just like a saint above it all. And, you know, it mm. doesn't work because he's not good at that. He's not a good actor. Um, and there's something ridiculous about the way he's been performing. And, you know, in this seven year period, he's only apologized twice for two of his policies. That's extraordinary. Mm. Um, in a country like India, 1.4 billion people, you'd want the head of government uh, to own up to problems. Not from him. Not from him. And uh, was one of those apologies recent with the because we're, we're speaking today uh, after there's a recent repeal of, I believe, three farm laws and two labor laws, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, did he, you know, there's a massive movement against these acts. Um, did he offer an apology or he was just like uh, unapologetic, even even as he was undoing them? Well, you know, the previous apology in 2015, a year into his government, was around an amendment to a land acquisition act. And then the farmers were up in arms as well. And he had to back down from that. Um, this uh, last summer, he pushed three farm laws uh, in, through parliament with very little discussion. And essentially, the best way to understand it is he wants to turn all Indian farmers into the equivalent of an Uber driver. They want to mm -hmm. Uberize agriculture, um, where you know, you're basically a, just a semi-independent contractor uh, with either your own field or you've rented fields from somebody, you know, like you drive your car or you rent a car from somebody, and then you get instructions from an anonymous app. You don't know who the other Uber drivers are, so you can't organize really. And you're at the mercy of the app. You know what the app tells you you have to do. And farmers said, no, for God's sake, we are not going to um, completely surrender our independence. So for a year, uh, tens of thousands of farmers sat outside Delhi and said, we're not going anywhere. This is the largest mass protest that I've seen in my lifetime. 54 years old, haven't seen anything like this. And Modi had to back down from the three farm laws. But let me say, he's a, he's a character. All he said was, I'm sorry, I couldn't persuade you. 
He didn't ah. say the laws were wrong, my friends. <laughs> he just said, I'm sorry, I couldn't persuade you. And the two labor laws, he didn't move on those. Those okay. are not to be withdrawn. You know, last year, 26th of November, 250 million workers went on strike in India. That's almost the entire population of the United States. 250 million workers. And yet the government will not move on those two labor laws because business just wants it. You know, they want to take away people's dignity. You know, you're not entitled in this world to have dignity. Is he always right. passive aggressive? Is that is that his flavor? He's just like well, a rude you know, guy. Sometimes, and like... <laughs> sometimes he can be really nasty, like really nasty. Uh, many years ago, uh, now almost 30 years ago, I was a young reporter in Delhi and I was at somebody's birthday party, as it turned out. And at the time, a senior leader of Mr. Modi's party took me aside at the birthday party. You know, as these things go, there's journalists and there's politicians of different kinds. And he took me into a corner and he said the following to me. He said, you know, Vijay, you can write anything you want. We know you're critical of us. You can write anything you want. But if you make fun of us, be careful. Mm. Um, it was very chilling. You know, I was a young reporter and I was really quite scared by the way he told me that. He said, you can say anything you want. We're not going to tell you to not report. But if you make fun of us, be careful. So Modi's whole crowd, that whole right-wing strand in India is like that. They just don't tolerate it if you don't give them the adequate respect. And so more and more, people just don't cover them critically. You know, they, they're scared of them, actually. These are scary fellas. You know, they, they don't play around. So it's passive-aggressive, yes, in the way in which that sort of I'm above it all demeanor might appear. But they're really aggressive when it needs when they need to be aggressive. I wonder how much of politics comes down to your perspective on clowns, with the Modi faction <laughs> being so resolutely anti-clown in everything they do and their denial of, of the 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 force of life. And they even like when they were passing these laws, didn't they uh, refuse to let any dissenting voices even uh, speak in the in the parliament? I mean, they didn't even have a debate. Like, yeah. you know, it's a basic thing in a parliamentary democracy. You put a bill on the table. Um, you know, if you watch that, whatever it is, Schoolhouse Rock, even in <laughs> god-awfully undemocratic U.S. Congress, you know, they allow for debate on new bills when they're on the table. I mean, I just can't even imagine Mr. Biden is going to hold a summit on democracy what does the United States know about democracy? You know, when is the last time you've anybody has really felt that the Congress has operated democratically, you know, small d democratically? Um, in that sense, Modi's parliament, and it was Modi's parliament because he has a huge majority. They just rammed through these bills. And then later when he apologizes and tells the farmers, I'm sorry I didn't persuade you. There's, dis there's just, it's so disingenuous, you know. What do you mean, I'm sorry I didn't persuade you? You never allowed us to discuss the bills in the first place. Right. So, yeah, it's it's distressing to have him um, in power for so long. It was definitely, it was definitely a disappointment when he was, was reelected and he's, he'd have this friendship with Trump. But it is, as you mentioned, amazing to see this uh, upsurge in resistance to him. Um, and, you know, some... Leftists look at this from the U.S. and they say, oh, wow, look at what they're doing. 
they have a general strike. Uh, we could do that here. Let's just boom, snap our fingers, bingo, bingo, bongo, we got it. And uh, it's that we're kind of missing sometimes the fact that this took, you know, a long time of uh, organizing and building this movement. Um, how long have these these parties and 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 uh, organizations been been building their capacity and they're building their confidence uh, to pull something like this off? You know, it's a couple of things. One of them is before we talk about the parties and the unions and so uh-huh. on, we have to admit a fact, which is that in the states of like Punjab and Haryana, where these farmers protest, because it's near Delhi, were the most robust this year. In these uh, communities, the idea of community hasn't been destroyed. Uh, and there are still community institutions. You know, there are there is a lot of um, mutual aid that is just baked into the culture of Punjab and Haryana. You know, community. The idea of a community kitchen is not alien to that part of the world. If there's a crisis, you go and help your neighbors. You know, in many parts of the West, I, I want to say it a little bluntly that a lot of the community ideas has been eroded by individualism, you know, or family concern. You know, what's my family going to be like? Even during the pandemic, we saw very little mutual, uh, you know, uh, mutual aid, spontaneous mutual aid in various places. There was reliance on on soup kitchens and food kitchens of different kinds. But this kind of thing where in, you know, when when a strike takes place, Community members just gather, put up a tent in a public place, start cooking food and they cook for a thousand people. You know, there's no there is no need to say, okay, who's going to do what? It's a kind of spontaneous mutual aid. So that's a huge advantage for this kind of struggle. Um, Religious institutions kicked in immediately, particularly the Sikh Gurdwaras. They came and set up langars where you could eat and so on. And the trade unions and agricultural unions have been going since the 1920s and 30s. Um, You know, these are some left wing. The most uh, important in these were communist and socialist uh, trade unions. But there were also community trade unions, you know, where a certain area, the farmers gathered together and they created a farmers association. So there were regional associations of farmers and they've been struggling from ni- since 1991. Do you know that since 1991, 400,000 farmers have docu- been documented to have committed suicide? 400,000. 100,000 in the last seven years. This is government statistics, you know. So farmers have been at it for a very long time. You can't just snap your fingers and do these things. It requires, yeah. as the word you use is confidence, it requires community. And it requires confidence. You've got to have faith in your neighbors. You know, you can't distrust your neighbors. And what happens in these kind of class struggles is that the class struggle is geographic because, you know, you're living in a farmer's area. You don't have too many absentee landlords. You don't have big corporate people living near you. So the entire community can come together and rise up. And that's what happened in this struggle. You see, the people who own the corporations live very far away. So you don't know who they are. They're abstracted. And that's why the farmers immediately personalized the struggle. And they said, you know, Adani, Ambani, the names of the big business owners, we are going to boycott you, they said. Now, these Adani and Ambani don't live next to them. You know, so the whole community rose up. This is some this is a lesson to take. You know, when I learned about way capitalism works and so on. We were told one of the most difficult things is to organize against an abstract force. 
you know in the old days you organize against the landlord or against the lord the feudal lord or whatever. now who banks whatever but what this struggle showed was that people in a community said look we are all getting screwed together we're all going to rise up who's the enemy or whatever it's somewhere over there and we're going to name them you know you could rise up and say it's you know elon musk or it's it's jeff bezos you know why not jeff bezos you know bezos we're going to come after you man you know you you have an ambition to be the world's first trillionaire no it's not going to happen you can be mars's first trillionaire but you're not going to be earth's first trillionaire and and you can take elon with you you know there's a way in which you can personalize it and that's what the farmers did they said modi adani ambani and so on and the you know obviously very tragic about the uh suicide rates over the past few years but hasn't that gone down uh with with this movement this is interesting so it's also true that as the farmers started to protest and the first big protest took place about 6 years ago so in maharashtra there was a long march from nasik to bombay the farmers in the state of maharashtra it's an enormous state in western india where there had been a lot of suicides marched across the state essentially they arrived in bombay which is one of the most important cities in the world it's a big financial capital and so on they arrived at the outskirts of bombay they were told that listen tomorrow when you plan to march into bombay it was 11 o'clock at night they were told when you plan to march into bombay tomorrow it's the examinations for the uh, secondary school students so your marching in is going to disrupt them so these thousands of farmers quickly gathered and they took a vote to continue marching through the night even though they had marched all day in the blazing sun they marched through the night entered bombay entered the main area set up their camp before daybreak and when the news of this came to uh, the city the city came out to greet the farmers you know people brought bottles of water food because they they saw the compassion of the workers you know they said we don't want to disrupt the children's school and their exams and so on so they marched all night and that kind of story that that event of the long march of the farmers it made a lot of people feel like you know we can fight and you're right in maharashtra and vidarbha in particular there was a decline in the suicide rate people said i'm not going to bloody drink fertilizer and die i'm going to march all night into bombay and challenge the government and the government had to meet their demands that's something you know once you start protesting and you can see this in a place like the united states where you know in so many towns you've had an epidemic of farm losses you might remember the 1980s you know willie nelson and farm aid and i covered a story in iowa at that time it was a farm suicide a man yeah. came from a bank where he had been foreclosed came to his house shot his whole family and killed himself but it was not called a farm suicide you know i'm sure if you look in iowa in the 80s the rates of shootings inside families would be very high i'm sure and so you know you go from that to the meth amphetamine epidemic in many of these farm states in the united states there's a decline of confidence nothing we can do you know kids driving around in bikes with bottles of methamphetamine to mix it they're getting paid to ride around town so they mix the meth bring it back to the labs that's the state of many of the towns in the us i bet if a protest movement of substance breaks out there you'd see a decline in the kind of desolation 
uh, that people feel or the turn to Trump. You know, the turn to Trump might have actually decreased desolation among people for all the wrong reasons. But nonetheless, it may have decreased their desolation. It would have turned it into anger. Right. Uh, so that actually brings me to a question I wanted to ask you about uh, internationalism and how to actually connect these movements from around the globe, the United States, India, uh, Latin America, wherever. Um, and it seems like the sort of uh, traditional, you know, Trotskyist view that a lot of people uh, I've known through the years have, have subscribed to is that internet, it has to be an international movement. So that means everybody has to be coordinated. You do a strike in Iowa, you also have to connect it to some strike in, in Germany, and that's how you get the ball rolling. But uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like your perspective on this is a little different, that uh, internationalism is crucial. But in order for it to actually work, the movements have to be built in each of these places first, based on local and, and national concerns that are uh, before you, you build those bonds. So the actual solidarity has, has meaning. Um, is that fair to say, or would you quibble with that a little bit? No, I think that's very fair to say, and that's well said. Look, Thank frankly, you. people need to understand that they can change the world, and you'll experience that in your own locality. You know, if you're out there, um, you know, struggling for, like, say, income support for your, for your neighbors, or you're out there struggling for the right of a woman to have, you know, uh, her body in control by herself and so on. If you're in out there in the world struggling, a sense of confidence, you have a, a vision of where you exist in the world. And having built your confidence, your power, your organization, you can link up with people around the world. You know, for instance, there was an enormous demonstration this week in Buenos Aires, um, led by the people who go through the trash, essentially recyclers who go through the trash and pull the plastic out and so on. They uh, demonstrated on behalf of a law uh, for packaging, where you're going to force companies to use essentially non-plastic packaging and recycled materials and so on. The American Chamber of Commerce in Buenos Aires uh, lobbied against the law because U.S. companies in Argentina don't want this law. Um, and so that's a good instance of internationalism. You know, it would have been interesting if uh, we had, say, Coca-Cola unions in Colombia and in the United States and other countries get involved and say, yeah, we agree with you that Coke needs not should not be paying off legislatures in the Argentinian uh, Congress, but should be taking the words of these workers seriously. But you can only do that one organization to another, you know, mm -hmm. and you don't build your organization in the ether, you build your right. organization where you stand. And that's why it's so important in a country like the United States to have more robust organization, you know, don't have to be trade unions, they can be in communities, you need robust organization, people feel powerless. Otherwise, you know, they don't feel like they can do anything. And you just have, I mean, I, I feel like sometimes I keep saying the same thing, but you have to do something. You can't have a theory unless you're yeah. also testing the theory in the world. So there's lots of young people in the United States getting influenced by Marxism. And I, I see that online. You know, they write to me and say, oh, we watched all the." And I want to say, you know, OK, that's great. Now build a group where you live, act where you live, you know, test your politics, see what your neighbors are struggling with, you know. Uh, lift up the concerns of your neighbors, amplify them. 
make them known. Go and tell the mayor of your town. This is an issue. Mayor says, look, it's out of my hands. I can't do anything. Go see the Congress person. Take 100 people, build it to 500. That's how you build power. And then you can connect to a group in Argentina and a group in, you know, else in India and so on. You can't link up to them as an individual. That's the issue with internationalism. You know, we are all internationalists, but you have to be internationalists from one center of organization or one node of organization to another node of organization. Right. And I, I feel like you know, I, I believe you came to the United States uh, in early 80s. Is that correct? That's it. Yeah. yeah. And and now we look back on that as, oh, it's such a dismal time for the left. You know, got Reagan and all that. But there was, compared to today, a pretty massive uh, internationalist movement in, in America of fighting uh, apartheid in South Africa. And, you know, we know how awful Reagan was in Latin America. But in many ways, that movement that I you were a part of, uh, helped stop him from doing, from being way worse, you know, cause Nicaragua could have been a, another Vietnam. And that's, was, was the concern at that point. Um, what were some of those lessons you take from the, from the 1980s and, and being able to, as the left was in decline, actually, um, forcing the U S government to, to, uh, to hold back and, and, you know, do things like, uh, force sanctions on, on the apartheid regime in South Africa. Well, I came to the United States in the mid-1980s, having experienced a terrible uh, situation, a, a, a riot, which in which over a weekend, 3,000 Sikhs were killed in Delhi. And having been rattled by that, I found it hard to focus. And anyway, I found myself in Los Angeles eventually. And in Los Angeles, I was uh, very quickly drawn into two kinds of struggles. One was the struggle against apartheid South Africa that I brought with me. That concern was already with me in India. I had already been involved, even though India, there was no real target for an anti-apartheid movement. It was more solidarity with the people of South Africa. But when I got to California, I got involved with, um, you know, the kind of the concerned people concerned with South Africa and various networks. The other one, which, which was really an eye-opener for me, I got to tell you, it was incredible, was I got involved with CISPES, which is the community in solidarity with the people of El Salvador. That was really an eye-opener because I don't know if you know that, but there are, I think, near or almost more people from El Salvador in Los Angeles than in San Salvador. I think mm. something like more or nearly as many people in the capital of El Salvador as live in Los Angeles. And, you know, the death squads didn't just operate in El Salvador. They operated in, in Los Angeles. Um, there's a very famous case of a, of a woman uh, who worked for CISPES in the office. I knew her who was abducted by a death squad in Los Angeles. Um, wow. And it was nuts. Uh, there was a, a uh, there's a church, the church of in East Los Angeles, um, where the 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 father, their father Olivares, uh, opened his church to be a sanctuary for people from El Salvador, particularly some of the people of the left who had come across the border and so on. And that brought why I'm saying it was an eye opener is it brought together the how intimate the United States actually is with Central America. Central America is not far away from Los Angeles, 
you know, Los Angeles teams with people from Mexico and Central America because it used to be part of Mexico. And it's not so far away, you know, and people are there in large numbers. The immigration issue is there. The police issue is there. The harsh brutality of Los Angeles was there, but also the war. The war was there and not just people fleeing from the war, you know. Um, the war machine is all over the place in, in Southern California. You know, military contractors, uh, defense intelligence people, the Rand Corporation, all of them are in LA. Los Angeles is a military city. We don't think about it like that. We think of Hollywood. We don't think about war, but you know, you got Rand, you've got Caltech, you've got, you know, uh, the military contractors, you've got military production happening at the edges of LA. Um, and then you have these, the populations from El Salvador, from Nicaragua, from Honduras, which was treated essentially as a military base. Lots of migrants from Honduras living in miserable conditions. They didn't want to be in LA. They fled from the US bombs or the US bases. And that to me, friends, that was an enormous lesson because, you know, South Africa, it's not quite a US story. It didn't seem, of course, US corporations and Dick Cheney saying that, you know, uh, Nelson Mandela is a terrorist. All of that is true. The United States played a big role. But in Central America, it wasn't just some corporate thing and assistance in the UN. It was nasty. And to watch the nastiness of the US war machine, it's been a lesson I have never, ever forgotten. Well, I want to uh, make sure as well to ask you about your latest book, Leave Washington Bullets, which um, slightly embarrassing. When I first saw that this had come out, there was about a five to 10 second period where it's like, wow, did Vijay Prashad just write a book about the Washington Bullets basketball team? Uh, I thought it was like a political history of the team for a second, um, but it is not about that. Uh, it's it's a, a really, I think, important book, for, especially for young radicals, uh, sort of a primer on U.S. foreign policy and what we've done over the years. And to write it, I believe you actually interviewed a former CIA director. Uh, how did you pull that off? <laughs> no, no, it's not one director. You see, over the – firstly, I must say that I'm glad you thought it was a book about basketball – I am going to eventually write a book about the greatest Cuban boxer because as a young oh. man, before miming, I used to be a boxer and I was a pretty really? good boxer. That's why my nose is broken and, <laughs> and so on. I was pretty good. I was a welterweight. That's uh, not for the miming? Pardon? That's not from the miming? The broken no, that was not for miming. That was from a <laughs> left hook. Uh, I used to box as a southpaw, uh, which means I faced off this way and I took a really bad shot on the nose and cracked and it was... <sighs> It's an incredible feeling to have that happen because you sort of blind, you go blind with the pain because uh, it's right in your brain, you know. Anyway, um, but I'm going to write a book about Teofilo, you know, the great Cuban boxer uh, some other day. Uh, but that book is named after a, a, a song by The Clash, who I encountered in Los Angeles. And in fact, their album Sandinista was just for me a revelation about music and I knew punk rock and I used to be a DJ at KSPC playing the all night punk show with my friend Greg Owen who tragically died a couple of years ago. Um, you know, we used to do an all night punk show. He played West Coast punk rock 
and I played basically English punk like the UK subs and things. We had Jello Biafra come to the studio. We had all kinds of, you know, interesting Sorry. people. Henry Rollins. Um, you know, that was the day of Yola Tango, of, uh, you know, the butthole surfers, of, of dead Kennedys. And those were the days of the Roxy and so on. So when I listened to The Clash, I remember listening to the whole double album of Sandinista thinking, this is incredible. And I've always wanted to use the title of that song, Washington Bullets by The Clash, for something. And I said, this is perfect. Over the course of the years, while I've written and, you know, traveled to Iraq and, and Afghanistan and different places, obviously I've encountered and befriended CIA people. You know, that's in the nature of things. Um, and often, you know, they're very smart people, many of them, particularly the analyst crowd. Um, and several years ago, I had in, been interested in writing a book about the assassination of a U.S. ambassador in Kabul, in Afghanistan, in 1979. And his name is Adolf Dubs. He's the first U.S. ambassador to be killed uh, on duty. Um, this is before, you know, Steve, uh, Stevenson was killed in Libya, much before, uh, in 1979. And I had been going around. I met an MI5 guy. I met all kinds of intelligence people, Afghan intelligence, trying to collect material on this. And I got a message from this guy who said, meet me this day at a hotel in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So I, you know, dutifully showed up at the hotel at tea time and he was sitting there in the big overcoat and he started, you know, chatting with me, asking me, you know, how did you, how did you get here? You know, that kind of thing. And I thought this is incredible because, I mean, I knew who he was. He was the director of operations in essentially all of West Asia in the key years of the 70s and 80s. You know, he, he was stationed in Tehran before the, um, uh, the Iranian revolution. Eventually, he was, bureau, he was station chief in Paris, very senior CIA guy in the field. And he told me, stay away from the dub story. He said, this is going to be too much for you. You, you, we don't, you know, we've been watching you, he said to me. I said, what the hell? You know? <laughs> I mean, I, I've often thought this would make a great Oliver Stone movie. You know, the killing of Adolf Dubs and the start of the war on terror. Um, but this man, you know, and others over the years have really been useful because you know, he's dead now. He died a few years ago. But they've told me many interesting stories because they've got nothing to hide. Let's be frank. I mean, really? some of this stuff is for them also bragging, you know. Uh, he would tell me things with a kind of, you know, like a bravado, actually. Not so much bragging, but bravado. You know, I, I did this and I was there. And, and I thought that's fascinating. So a lot of the book is from CIA Materials. Um, but a, a lot of it is informed by people saying, you should go and look there. You haven't read that. You don't know about this. I mean, the stuff about the use of trade unions, the AFL-CIO in Guyana, I would never have known to look for that. You know, I would never have in my life thought that the AFL-CIO had an office, uh, two offices on the east coast of the U.S. where they brought trade unionists, particularly from Latin America, and trained them sent them back and used them uh, to when they needed to have mass protests to create problems. So Chedi Jagan's government was basically dogged by these CIA trained and paid, uh, you know, leaders of trade unions who brought people on the streets, not for the interests of the people on the street, but for the coup. 
And that was the mass support for the coup. It, it's incredible, you know. Uh, in fact, uh, a, a British intelligence guy said it shouldn't be called the AFL-CIO. It should be called the AFL-CIA. And I thought that's that's <laughs> as the British are. That's rum, you know. Yeah. <laughs> the dry joke. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, yeah. I Oh, man, there's so much to ask. Uh, I do want to quickly get – you mentioned Oliver Stone. And I'm very curious what you – because you talk a, a little bit about Kennedy in the book. And there's kind of two main sort of positions that I feel like a lot of leftists have on on JFK. And one is that, hey, and this is what I used to think, like, he's a liberal nationalist. He's an imperialist. Like, you know, who cares? Um, they had no reason to assassinate him. And then the other side, which is like, oh, he was a this this closet socialist who's on the verge of, you know, making America into a Marxist revolutionary country. Uh, and I. Would you agree that there it's the truth might be somewhere in the middle there is that like there are signs he wanted to ramp down the Cold War and or at least that it wasn't in our strategic interest and the CIA didn't like that so much and who in short who do you think killed Kennedy who killed JFK boy yeah. that's so uh, shall I te- shall I open the envelope and and reveal yes. it finally? <laughs> well, you uh, have the CIA, yeah, you have their info. Look, the <laughs> fact is that the United States is filled with a lot of nutcases with guns, and they've done a lot of killing over the years, and so it, everything doesn't have to be the CIA. Let's let's just face that, you know. Um, okay, in the early twentieth uh, century, late nineteenth century, the anarchists did kill people. McKinley was killed by an anarchist, and so on. Right. Um, you know, Kennedy. I mean, Lincoln. I think that's not a conspiracy. You know, I don't know what people think about what the current thinking is on Lincoln, but a lot of the. I think it was the CIA. They didn't the CIA. Yet, but that's think, right. Yeah, with time traveling CIA agent. Right. Uh, I think there's a lot of uh, there's there just is a lot of uncertainty because there's a lot of killing. You know, was uh, Malcolm X killed by the government? Wow, interesting. Um, was uh, was MLK, Martin Luther King, killed by the government? I think so. I actually think yeah. that's pretty open and shut. There was a good book about that a few years ago. I think some government people were involved in the killing of Martin Luther King. That I, I'm almost sure about that. King was a threat, a genuine, yeah. serious threat. Um, he had pivoted far enough to the left. He had started the poor people's movement and they got rid of him. I don't think that was an accidental killing. Not one crazy white guy with a pop gun shooting him. You know, that seemed a little too convenient uh, to get him out of the way. Was Kennedy a real threat? Now, there are two uh, things even there. One is, was he a real threat or was he perceived by some people as a threat? I personally don't think Kennedy was a threat to the order. I think he, he actually took orders very well. Bay of Pigs is a great example of that. Any book you read on the Bay of Pigs, Kennedy really was not a dissenting voice. He went along with the Dulles brothers. I know it was not his plan. He inherited it, but he didn't say you know anything. He, he was happy to go along with it. So I actually don't think Kennedy was a threat to the prevailing order, to the you know uh, United Fruit Company, because the Dulles brothers were shareholders in United Fruit. I mean, the coup in Guatemala was a coup that profited. The Dulles brothers, it wasn't just for the United States. It was for their personal profit as well. Something that doesn't get talked about enough. And even the secretary of one of the Dulles brothers had shares in United Fruit. That's the extent of the corruption, you know. Um, But he might have been perceived as a threat. 
And he certainly could have been perceived as a threat by the mafia. Um, mm. And so, you know, is it the mafia? Is it rogue elements in the CIA? See, I know enough about the CIA to know that there are lots of rogue characters that, you know, dance in and out of that agency. It's not necessary that the director signs a note and says, go do it. There's a lot of, you know, winking, nodding. There's a lot of kind of ambitions of being greater than you actually are. You know, you give somebody a badge, you give them training to use a high powered gun. You don't know what they're going to do, you know. So I, I just think that the level of uncertainty here, it's worthwhile maintaining. I, I just don't want to actually accept that Kennedy was a real threat. I don't think that's the case. Evidence doesn't suggest it. But they could have perceived him as a threat. And therefore, yeah. it may be absolutely true that he was taken out. But I mean, you know, it's still the case that the documentation is not public. And so mm -hmm. I think that's what Oliver Stone is really pointing at is that give us some more. You know, it's hard yeah. to believe that this was a lone wolf guy sitting up there with a high powered gun. You know, it's hard to believe that. Right. Well, if anyone wants to find out more about how the CIA pulls off these uh, coups, there's like a nine-step guide you lay out in the book. Hopefully that doesn't get in the wrong hands, by the way. I, I'm sort of worried that young uh, prospective CIA people will see that and be like, oh, that's what I do. Uh, Oops. But it's – yeah, it's it's worth the risk to, to read Washington Bullets. Um, but as for closing here, you are a – I believe the founder of the Tricontinental Institute – uh, what can you tell us about the work you do there and how can people get involved? Well, it's called thetricontinental.org on the web, which is the only address that counts. Um, okay. We are part of an international project called the International People's Assembly, which is a network of 200 political organizations around the world, including Landless Workers Movement in Brazil, um, the Socialist Party of Zambia, Workers' Party of Tunisia, the Communist Party of Nepal, and so on. Big, hefty political organizations have come together. And we are essentially the research institute of the assembly. And we do tons of work. You know, we have offices all over the world. We do a lot of work. We're committed to building a different kind of, of, of understanding of the world. You know, I, I was telling you earlier today that I, I went on to Facebook and I said, you know, when I started off as a, a in academics, people just used to say to me, you're like, a, you're such a clown. You know, they say this all the time. And I used to honestly, although now meeting you, Anders, I, and saying that you're a clown, trained clown. I, but I used to take that in a negative way because I felt they were dismissing me. And I used to feel bad about it. Then I realized over time, over, it took me some time to realize what they're saying is don't believe too much or don't speak so bluntly. You know, you should be more sophisticated. You know, don't believe all. If you believe too much, you'll maybe get sort of sidetracked. Now I believe that the earth is in such a perilous state. You know, the planet, the people, we got to just speak our minds. You know, we can't be offensive, but we have to speak our minds. We have to be clear. And so one of the things in Tricontinental is you will not see us pulling our punches. You know, we say what we feel and we write so that people can read our work. We don't hide behind abstractions and we don't hide behind complicated language. We want complexity to be legible. It's the hardest thing to do. It's easy to make, uh, you know, uh, simple things complicated. It's much harder to make complicated things simple. And that's the task we've set ourselves. 
how do we make a very complicated reality as simple as possible, as clear as possible? Because we want to reach you. We don't want to just talk to intellectuals or we don't want to talk to the elites. We want to reach you and we want you to tell us whether we are legible or just full of shit. <laughs> well, amen to that. Uh, thank you again so much for coming on, Vijay Prashant. It's a pleasure. It's great. And that was VJ Prashad, everybody. Wow. Yes. Check him out uh, on Twitter at VJ Prashad. V I J A Y Prashad. Is telling the truth based right in? He, we, uh, I don't know if we mentioned this on air, but he is in Chile right now when we're talking to him. And he said he began his day in India and then is going somewhere else. I think he said he was going to end it in Malaysia. And yeah. then I was like, damn, that's already two countries. And he's like, and I'm in Chile. And I was like, I don't, I need to see the timeline of where right. you're going. Cause it I does think... not track for me with the amount of like, how are you doing our interview right now? Well, yeah, I think what the fuck? there's a possibility. And, uh, I don't know if possibility is the right word, but there's a chance he has the power of flight. Oh. Okay. It's the first thing they teach you at mime school. That's why you got to yeah. shut your mouth. <laughs> Keep that shit to yourself. That's I right. like it. Join the Tricontinental and they will teach you how to fly. I'm going to school to uncover the secret power of mimes. Flying mimes. That would be a good superhero, a flying mime. Um, oh, it wouldn't. I know it wouldn't. Maybe not. No, okay, a villain. It would be a better villain. <laughs> Very scary uh, villain, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because it's silent. It's coming right at you. That's right. Or away uh, from you hauntingly. Mm. And you know how they can do things like they pull that rope or whatever? They just, I don't know, they like flapped their wings and they're like flying like with their arms. Aren't you the one who said that we shouldn't get into jokes i'm hung over okay yes <laughs> what do we want to plug on the way out here <laughs> i was holding back i want to plug that uh jfk was actually killed by papa doc duvalier with voodoo and the number 22 didn't uh say that to his face because i didn't want to insult our guest but as right. we all know loyal listeners of the show jfk was killed by voodoo right because papa doc had that doll and why would yeah. he have that if he didn't do it is the on the 22nd of was it september come on um 9 is that no eleven twenty two sixty three. stephen king oh, book no. november november Boom. 22nd point being 22nd 2-2 papa doc was obsessed with 22 he killed jfk tell me god didn't have a plan yeah was that Are we plugs? doing plugs <laughs> yes <laughs> uh... <laughs> <laughs> is that that's I, our movie of the week is an idea i had <laughs> oh all right i am uh oh i have to think of the movie of the week that's right come back to me okay we're gonna come back to anders my movie of the week is oh. jojo's bizarre adventures season six on netflix streaming now which is about women and women empowerment which as an ally i support and that's also my plug Yo, real talk, I watched this movie Possession last night. It's like an old horror film. It's got Sam Neill in it. It was banned when it came out in the UK. It takes place in uh, Berlin in like 1981 before the wall fell. Real shit. 
It's fucking tight. That movie kicked ass. It was about a divorce. It was also about H.P. Lovecraft tentacle aliens. Oh, my God, dude. And everybody acted their ass off in it. It was having mental breakdowns. That's my movie of the week, Possession. My plugs are listen to this podcast and sign up for our Patreon. Listen to my other podcast while you're mad. And that's it. We did a very extensive episode on Max Headroom this week, which is a guy I had never heard of before this show. That's right. Yeah. Check that out. Uh, I'm at Andersley here on Twitter, Dursley on Instagram. Check out uh, Redacted Tonight, my other J-O-B. And uh, movie of the week, we, maybe we'll do an episode on about this. Uh, it's 40th anniversary of the film Reds with Warren Beatty. And, uh, oh, wow. Speaking of being a ally to women, I'm even, I, I can't believe I'm forgetting wow. the name of the, the uh, his co-star. How could I... So, so I guess uh, you're not sexist. an ally to women. I'm not an ally to women. No, Diane, of course it's Diane Keaton. That's what it's I thought. It's kind of like you're an enemy to all women. That's Yeah, I, she was on the tip of my tongue, but I wasn't sure it was her, and I didn't want to, you know. But anyway, check out Reds. Yep. And doubling down on this Patreon plug, uh, you got to get back there to uncover hit characters like Barack Onanism. Barack Onanism, the matchup character of Barack Obama and the biblical concept of forbidden masturbation. Which I've been working on in my free time, and I've come up with this. Allow me to be clear. I shoot that glue. (laughs) (laughs) Allow me to be milky and not clear. (laughs) Talk about cum, folks. Allow me to shoot my goop. If you like my seed, you can't keep it. <laughs> on the ground. I'm st- days later having a lot of fun with this. Okay. Oh, man. Thank you again to our guest, who was a very smart guy for coming on. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah. and, and we'll see you at the movies. That is not how we end this show. <laughs> <laughs>